One uh, afternoon, a while ago, back in high school, I won't tell you how long ago, but back in high school, um, my art teacher made a terrible mistake. So this particular day, she opened up class. She gave us a few opening instructions about whatever project it was that we were working on, and then she left. And uh, I don't know if she had a meeting or whatever, but the point is, we were left there in class for an entire period with no supervision. So the question was, what were we going to do while she was away? And it didn't take long to figure out how this thing was going to go. Pretty quickly, rather than just sitting there and working on our projects, people get up and they're walking around and they're chatting and they're goofing around and digging through art supply drawers. And before you know it, half the class isn't even thinking about their project. And then I had a few classmates, and you could see the look in their eye. It was mischief mixed with opportunity. And uh, that's dangerous. And those couple of kids start moving all the art tables around. And at this point, the bad ideas and the bad behavior are escalating rapidly. And those couple of kids have moved all the art tables in a square, sort of surround, sort of lining the art room. They're all connected together. And as the class is falling apart, and no one is even thinking about their art project anymore, one of those kids in my class found a bunch of rubber cement. And he decides he's going to pour out the rubber cement on, the, on these art tables that are lining the room. And things are just unraveling in this class. Until one kid pulls out a lighter and lights the rubber cement. So now the art tables are on fire Everything is everywhere. Everyone is doing whatever they want. No one is thinking about their art project. That is a true story. That is what happened when my art teacher was away. Everyone went from sitting there diligently, faithfully, working on their art project to horsing around and lighting the tables on fire. You may not be setting art tables on fire. I trust that you aren't. But our temptation is that when the teacher, when the boss, when the authority figure is away, when they're not right there with us, that our work just sort of digresses. Now, today's text introduces the reality that once Jesus dies and he resurrects and he ascends, though Christians are gifted with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is no longer physically walking this earth among us any longer. He's with us. He lives. We have His Spirit. But He's not physically here with us any longer. And the passage raises a question, what will we do while He is gone? And right off the bat, God's Word makes it very clear that in this space between Jesus' ascension and His return, God gives His servants good gifts to use for His glory. God gives his servants good gifts to use for his glory. So turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We're still working our way through Luke's gospel. We land in chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 11. Luke 19, 11. <clears throat> As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately. So verse 11 frames the parable that we're about to read. If the parable is a picture, verse 11 gives us the frame explaining to us why Jesus is telling us the parable. And first, he tells the, the crowd this parable because they're near to Jerusalem. 
Now remember, he's just had this exchange with Zacchaeus that we looked at last week. So they're in Jericho. Jericho is right around 17, 18 miles from Jerusalem. But more importantly, in the big scheme of the narrative of Luke's gospel, we are at the very end of this road to Jerusalem. So if you guys remember, way back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus turns his attention from this Galilean ministry and he takes these disciples and they embark on this mission to Jerusalem, which has taken us all the way through the end of our text today in chapter 19. And by the end of our text, they'll have reached their destination and that journey ends. And there are expectations for what is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Which brings us to the second reason he tells the parable. Because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the crowds believed that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to consummate his kingdom. He's going to usher in this era of peace for Israel. But as we find out, that's not at all Jesus' plan. He's far more concerned with conquering sin on the cross than he is conquering Rome. Uh, it's not his plan to, for, for his kingdom to be fully realized right then. In fact, we will not see the full glory of God's kingdom until he does return. So since Jesus' mission in Jerusalem was to die as a sacrifice for sinners, to conquer sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection, since he would ascend and since he would promise to return, Jesus is going to tell a parable teaching us something valuable about life here and now until he comes back for us. That's the frame. And here's how the parable begins. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So while it's so easy to get in trouble while we're interpreting a parable through over-allegorizing every little details, I do think there are some interesting parallels in this one. There's a nobleman who goes far away to receive a kingdom with this intention of returning. And that's a picture of Jesus. And in the parable, the nobleman does a couple interesting things. He gathers ten of his servants together. He gives each one a mina. Now these servants are those pe- representing those people who are following the Lord. And a mina was a, a piece of currency at the time. One mina equaled three to four months wages. And in the parable, the minas represent the things that God has given us, the good things that he has given to his servants. Skills, spiritual gifts, relationships, finances, your, your body, everything you've learned, everything you have, everything that God has given you in this life. And finally, those people who hated the master, hated the nobleman, rejected his reign, in verse 14, are those people who reject Jesus. So Jesus has just symbolically given us a lot of information He came to establish a kingdom. Some people are going to reject him. He's going to leave with this intention of returning. And in the meantime, he has given good gifts to his servants so that they might use them for God's glory. We know this because after he gives each servant a a mina, he says, engage in business until I come. This means there is a call and there is an expectation that the servants are going to take that mina 
and make a profit. God calls us to use this time while he is away, not to sit on our butts, but to work for his glory. My high school art teacher, she left the class with this misguided, but it was, it was an expectation that we we're just going to sit there and diligently, faithfully do our work. God likewise has this expectation that while he is no longer physically walking the earth among us, that his servants are going to be working for him, that we will wait for Jesus in faithfulness. And the text brings up some heavy-duty questions as we start to apply some of these ideas. And a good place to start is thinking through what has God given you? Start to think long and hard about the many good gifts that God has placed into your care. Identify these things. How can we use them if we don't even know what they are? Maybe it's an apartment. Maybe it's a healthy body. Maybe it's a car or a relationship or finances. If you're a Christian, Scripture tells us that when you trust Jesus as your Lord, the Holy Spirit indwells you and gifts you with spiritual gifts for the purpose of blessing God and loving God and loving other people. Identify those things. And once you've identified the good gifts that God has given you, ask yourself, how can I use these good gifts for God's glory? You can know that God has given you the good gifts that He's given you for a purpose and that He will reap a harvest if you will actively invest and work out and use all these things. And that is exactly what we do. We leverage everything that God has given us on this mission to bring Him glory. So if God has given you an apartment, use it. Invite your neighbors over. Show them what a Christian family looks like. If God has entrusted you with a healthy body, serve Get out there. Use it. If God has filled your life with friendships and, and you have influence in people's lives, leverage that, those relationships and that influence for the sake of sharing Christ with people. If you've been given time, use it. Leverage it. Plug into a connection group or a discipleship group. Your unique you, the way God has designed you, your experiences, everything, you have no idea how much you have to offer an entire group of people. And I can't even tell you how many times someone in one of these groups has said something. And to them it was a passing comment. But man, it profoundly helped me. And once you identify the good gifts that God has given you and you ask yourself and you discern how can I use these things for God's glory, ask yourself, but am I using these good gifts for God's glory? And uh, I'm so well aware that I stand up here in front of a group of people who are living this out. And so many of you, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this feeling convicted myself, but proud of this church. Because people in this room are doing it, living, living on mission. We have people cooking meals and using their own resources to drive over meals to people who are in need. We have people using their own transportation to pick other people up. Uh, to, to give them a ride to church. This stuff's happening all over our church and all over our community. And it's that kind of faithful stewardship that God delights in because you're not losing focus. You're not setting the art tables on fire, so to speak. But you're identifying God's good gifts and you're using them not for you, but for Him. And if that's you, be encouraged by this text. You're on the right track and let it spur you on to greater faithfulness. And if you're not using God's good gifts for His glory, ask yourself why. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's self-centeredness. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe you're at an honest place in your heart where you just don't care. 
What is keeping you from using God's good gifts for His glory? So Jesus' teaching here instructs us to spend our time on earth while Jesus is away using the good gifts He's given us for His glory. But the text pushes a little bit further, probes a little bit deeper than just suggesting that that is a good idea. In fact, Jesus' words here show us that we're not just, it's not a suggestion, we are actually responsible for stewarding God's gifts. Look at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So the nobleman returns, and he doesn't forget about the minas. He uh, is not apathetic about what the servants have been up to. He's not slack in checking up with them. It's actually quite the opposite. He returns and he wants some face time with these guys. He wants to know what they've been up to. He wants to know uh, what, what sort of harvest they've yielded with the things he's given them. Like the nobleman, Christ is going to return and he's going to want to know what we've done with these good things that he's put into our care. We are responsible for our stewardship of his good gifts because Jesus, our great God and King, holds us responsible for these good gifts. And the question of reckoning in the text is really fascinating. It says that he might know what they had gained by doing business. There's this expectation that you're doing business, but he wants to know what, that, what kind of fruit for the kingdom that, that business has, has brought up. In other, other words, what profit have you made for me by faithfully stewarding the things I've entrusted to you while I've been away? Another way of asking that is, how faithful have you been to me while I've been away? And it's appropriate for the weightiness of that question to affect us. Because a day is coming when each of us will stand before our God and give an account for these things. Have you guys thought about that at all? This, I mean, studying this text has had that on my mind all week. And if not, let me challenge you to start praying start saying god give me a holy discontent i don't want to be okay doing nothing with all of these things that you've put in my life for the purpose of bringing you glory when i stand before you someday lord i don't want to say yep you gave me that and that and that and you entrusted this and this and this to me there you go i did nothing with them help me see The fruit that you can bring out of my life for you and for your kingdom. What can I do for you today, Lord? Pray these things. We are responsible for the way we steward God's gifts. And I want to make a comment on that now. Because right about here, it starts to feel like maybe you're an employee and there's this end of the year review coming and there's all this pressure and all God cares about is how productive you've been. And because that is not the case, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. A couple chapters over, Luke 21, 1-4. Luke 21, 1-4. This is a passage that speaks to what God values in our stewardship. Luke 21, starting in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, and she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. 
So there's a lot happening in this passage. I want to make two quick comments. Uh, First, Jesus didn't care about the amount, didn't care about the quantity, didn't care about who was actually giving more. Two, Jesus does care about the heart. You see, the rich and the widow are put before us as these examples. The rich people were giving a lot. They're dumping in a lot of money, but they were so rich, their giving wasn't a sacrifice. They're giving the leftovers that they don't need. Essentially, they're tipping God. And contextually, we also know that they're probably giving so much in front of everyone because everyone can see what they're giving, and then other people will look at them and say, man, they're really pious. That's a holy person right there. They're not giving because they were moved to please God. In contrast, Jesus sees far greater value in a poor widow giving her last two pennies because she's giving these pennies from a place of just this welled up passion to bless God. Her stewardship of those two pennies is more meaningful to Jesus than these rich people dumping in loads and loads of money because their giving is not coming from that same place of passion. So within this conversation about stewardship, you can ask yourself, what is the condition of my heart as I steward God's good gifts that he's given me? Are you stewarding God's good gifts with a heart like the widow saying, God, it's all yours. It's yours. If that means I give you my last two pennies, God, so be it because it's all yours. And I care more about you than all this earthly stuff. If that's you, God knows. He sees your stewardship and He says what you've contributed, though it may be a smaller gift quantitatively, is the greater gift in my kingdom. We steward God's good gifts with a heart like the widow, which means we steward God's good gifts with a heart that is shaped by the Gospel. Because the Gospel is the good news that God looked at sinners like you and I, people who are lost, And He gave us His most precious, costly gift ever. He gave us the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Gospel directs us to the cross, and the cross reminds us that He sacrificed more holy. And He he loved us more fully, and He served us first. Because His stewardship meant that He would give His very life for the sake of saving sinners who would trust in Him by faith through grace. And we're not saved by our works. God saves us eternally when we believe in the work of Christ. By faith, through grace, we repent of our sin, trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And though we are saved by faith through grace, God still cares about the way we spend our time here on earth. And the Gospel is not just powerful for bringing you from death to life for for this conversion experience. It is certainly the power of God unto that. But it's also central to our lives as Christians here and now. So our fruitful labor in this life is shaped. It's motivated by the cross. Looking at the cross, knowing the grace of Jesus Christ, powers our living here and now the way an engine drives a car. So when we take in this parable in the context of the Gospel, we aren't driven to activism to be these high-capacity doers Uh, motivated by this pressure to produce, which just creates these anxious, stressed out, insecure people who are always worried that we're not doing enough. The truth of the parable in the context of the Gospel causes us to gaze at the cross, 
To know and to be transformed by the love, the sacrifice, the grace, the mercy of Jesus Christ for us. Knowing that the extravagance of His love and His sacrifice might move us to love Him and to serve Him in response. The cross does not enlist us as employees in the kingdom. It shapes us into these thoughtful, Christ-centered people who are so taken with Jesus. Our devotion to our Savior is so full that all we want is to honor Him with all that we are and all that we have and all that we do. So the God-given responsibility to steward the good gifts that He's given us is no longer this enslaving burden. Now it's this joy-giving privilege. There's When you look at the cross, the more you realize that stewarding God's good gifts is not just checking off a bunch of items that you have to accomplish. The more you look at the cross, the more you remember that you have this Savior that's done everything for you. and He lets you take part in His mission in this world and you get to use your time on earth bringing Him glory. See how the Gospel changes our perspective? Thanks to the gospel, we wait for Jesus in faith and with faithfulness. So God gives his servants good gifts to use for his glory, and we are responsible for stewarding God's good good gifts for his glory. And next, the text shows us that God responds to our stewardship. When he returns, he will respond. The, the, The parable depicts three different types of people and God's appropriate response to each. Uh, First, we see that God responds positively to faithfulness. Look at verses 16 to 19. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So servants one and servants two are faithful, which means they've been working hard while the master's been away and they've invested well these minas and they're using them and they've, they, they've created a profit. And the nobleman responds. He tells his first servant, well done. But then he blesses them. Look, he, he says, you cre- I mean, you were working hard. One, one mine to ten, you get ten cities. F- one mine to five, you get five cities. Proving that... If you're faithful with what God has given you now, when he returns, he'll give you even more responsibility in his kingdom, even more opportunity to take part in the awesome, uh, unspeakable, joyful, satisfying work of bringing God glory. When Jesus returns, he will respond. And our Lord is so good and he is so generous to those faithful servants. So we are encouraged to wait for Jesus in faith and with faithfulness. But the parable also communicates that God responds negatively to unfaithfulness. Look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. So this servant was unfaithful uh, because uh, despite the nobleman's direct command, they took the mina, they wrapped it up in a towel, a handkerchief, and did nothing at all with it. He disobeyed an explicit command. And this is important. To not do anything with the good gifts that God has given you is disobedience. But there's an even bigger problem in view here. 
Because as it turns out, this unfaithful servant is unfaithful because he does not know the Master truly. Look at verse 21. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. The servant's reason for disobeying this command He's afraid of this nobleman, this master. He thinks he's a severe man. He thinks he's someone uh, who's exploiting other people. But wait, didn't the nobleman just bless these two faithful servants? Like over-the-top blessing? Is that who he is? He's just shown us that he's generous. He's good. He's gracious. He's so quick to commend and to bless. This servant has the wrong idea of the master. He does not know the master. Had he known him, had he been transformed by the gospel like we just talked about, wouldn't he have at least done what the nobleman suggests in verse 23? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Couldn't you have at least done the very least? Very little effort on your part. Put it in the bank. At least hand it back to me with some interest. If you had known me, if you had known my capacity for goodness and my capacity to bless and to give and to commend, wouldn't you have at least done that? But this servant didn't know the Master, which means he's lost. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays to his Father. If you've never read John 17, man, it is unbelievable. And in verse 3, Jesus says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He tells them what eternal life is, knowing God through Jesus. This servant is a picture of people who hang around Jesus and identify with church and Christianity in some respect, but they never know Jesus Christ truly. And because they don't know Him, they are lost. How tragic is that? I mean, this is a tragedy, this person. That people could go through all through life associating with Jesus, but never truly knowing Him. And here's the, the nobleman's response. Verse 22. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not, not sow. His response is condemnation. The nobleman calls the servant wicked, and then he basically says, I'm going to judge you based on your own description of me. If you think I'm this severe, exacting uh, person who exploits other peoples, you are condemned because you don't know me. And so the master then turns to this group of onlookers and he says this, Take the mina from him. Give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. The gist of the nobleman's response is judgment. And the servant is partially condemned because he doesn't multiply the minas. But the key idea here is that he didn't multiply the minas because he didn't know the master. Likewise, Jesus will appropriately judge those who reject Him because they do not truly know Him. And here's the principle behind what we've just learned, behind what just happened. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus says, when I return, the faithful, those people are, who are faithful because they truly know Me, They're in relationship with me. They've trusted me as their Savior. 
they will be given so, so much more. These people who recognize the joy of stewarding these good gifts. While the unfaithful, who are unfaithful because they do not know me truly, are left with nothing. And they do not know the abundant gifts of eternal life with God. Scripture says, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that you will be saved. You enter into this relationship with the holy God of the universe forever and ever and ever. And that relationship is secured. Scripture says, once, once, you've, once God has done that to your heart and enabled you to trust Him, then no one can snatch you out of His hands, not even you. But if you've never called on Jesus in faith, and like servant number three, you don't know Jesus truly, Jesus' teaching here shows us there's just no room for a wishy-washy response to him. There's no room for this lukewarm neutrality about Jesus. Either you know him truly, and the rest of your time on earth is defined by that relationship, or you don't, and it isn't. So we've seen God's response to these two unfaithful servants, or the two faithful, and then we've seen his response to the unfaithful. But we have a third group that's represented in the text. Look at verse 27, where we see a picture of these outright rejectors of Jesus. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are the same enemies of the noblemen that are mentioned in verse 14. They are rebellious people. They're people who just outright reject the Master. They reject Jesus. And their slaughter shows us that they too will be judged when Jesus returns. They will be lost. And this is not, this is not fun stuff to preach. It really isn't. This is the stuff that keeps me up in the night when I'm sleeping and just praying, God, I know this is so hard. I know this language of judgment and condemnation is so uncomfortable for people. God, I know it just rubs up against us and it's not something we enjoy hearing, but this is the truth of God. And it's here because we need to hear it. There's value in us hearing it. These people, this, this last group, they reject Jesus and they are lost forever. So through the parable, Jesus puts these three groups of people before us. We have these faithful people that receive the blessing of God. We have this, uh, this person who identifies with Jesus, but he doesn't know God truly. And as a result, he's condemned. And then we have these outright rejectors of Jesus, and they are judged. So you exist in this space between the ascension and the return of Christ. The Master is away. Your question is what will you do while he is gone? Will your time on earth be marked by faithful stewardship to Jesus Christ? Will you take the mina, will you wrap it in a towel, do nothing with it, only to hand it back to the Lord someday, saying, did nothing? Will you set the art tables on fire? Jesus cares that we work hard That we leverage the good gifts that he's given us for his glory, but faithful stewardship, it must start with genuine faith. It all starts with trusting Jesus. So what will it be? How will you spend your time on earth waiting for him? The text, God's own word, encourages us to use that time waiting for Jesus in faith and with faithfulness.
to wait for Jesus in faith and with faithfulness. So please pray with me. Our God, we love you and we thank you that you cared so much about us. That though we were so unworthy and so undeserving, though we were your enemies, we were rejectors of you, God, you sent your Son to die for us. And on that cross, Lord Jesus, you endured the penalty and you endured the curse of our own sin that we deserved and the wrath of God fell on you and you didn't deserve it, God. We did. You were perfect. We are so completely blackened by our own sin. But thank you, God, for doing it. Thank you for making a way for us to know you truly, Lord God. Thank you that eternal life can be ours if we would only know the one true living God through Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, even now that your word would not Your word would not stop moving in us, Lord. That your word would not stop changing us and convicting us and challenging us and spurring us on to faithfulness, God. Let us use the short time, these few days on earth that you've given us, God, to bring you glory. I pray that would be a defining mark of this church. That we would be people who are so quick to identify all that you've given us all that you've entrusted to us and that we would be so quick to say, Lord, how can we use it so that you might be blessed here? How can we use it so that the name of Jesus could be lifted up high in our community? How could we use it so that the only God who's worthy of it might be praised? So we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us and we thank you, God, that you've given us a part in your mission in this world. That is a privilege. We love you and we praise you together in Christ's name. Amen.